With the Twilight Histories podcast, you can travel anywhere in the multiverse. Some worlds are familiar, others are totally exotic. An Egypt ravaged by an ice age, a Carthaginian colony on Mars, a Rome that never fell. If you enjoy history, you'll love these immersive stories that pull you into different worlds. So step on the platform and let's get you on your way. Step into the Twilight Histories Podcast. Chapter 8 In the House of Tutankhamun Three thousand years ago, King Tutankhamun went to his rest. The pharaoh's servants, courtiers, and family placed his body in the tomb. He would lie in splendor amid treasures, art, and sacred texts. His mummy was bedecked in amulets, jewelry, weapons, and linen. Between his body and the walls of his chamber, dozens, hundreds of items marked Tutankhamun's burial. We have seen the paintings that decorated this chamber, and the shrines that filled most of its space. Now, we can follow Howard Carter as he took the next step, opening the shrines and seeing the burial of Tutankhamun. When Carter entered the burial chamber, the first shrine was unlocked. The doors were bolted and a piece of wood rested in the handles, but there was no seal, no rope tying them shut. So the bolt came out easily, the doors opened without trouble. Inside, Carter faced a wall of linen. Within the first shrine, a great shroud covered the interior. This enormous pole, about five and a half meters wide, or 18 feet, was laid by the ancients to cover the insides. The shroud was crooked, as in the servants did not lay it properly over the frame, which is a fun detail. You can imagine the ancients sweating in the crowded burial hall. They're trying to get the shroud in place and pulling it back and forth but in the cramped confines, they just can't do it. Imagine laying a sheet over an enormous bed and trying to line it up. That must have been a frustrating job. Beneath the shroud, Carter saw the second of Tutankhamun's shrines. Unlike the first, these interior shrines were locked. Each shrine had handles on the doors, and around those handles there were ropes. The ropes were tied and twisted together, with a lump of mud holding them in place. That mud was the seal, and it bore stamps from royal officials. On one seal, the name of Tutankhamun appeared with a symbol of Anubis, the canine protector. Beneath Anubis, nine prisoners appeared in three rows. These were the traditional enemies of Egypt. Bound, beneath the power of Anubis, those enemies submitted to the pharaoh's authority. So the doors were closed with symbols of power and security earthly security, and divine. When Carter saw these seals and the shroud, his excitement grew exponentially. So far, the discovery had been slightly tainted by evidence of robberies. Thieves had entered the monument once or twice in antiquity, and their work was visible in the antechamber. But the burial chamber had marks as well. In fact, Carter had entered this chamber through a hole created by robbers. So even as he opened the first shrine, 
the archaeologist suspected that thieves had been at work. Imagine his delight when he saw what lay within. Quote, When we drew back the bolts of the great shrine, the doors swung back, as if closed only yesterday. Within drooped a linen pull, still hanging on its wooden supports. The pull, or shroud, made us realise that we were in the presence of a dead king. The shrine was intact, its doors bore their original seal, uninjured. The robbers had not reached the king. We had at last found what we never dreamed of attaining, an absolute insight into the funerary customs followed in the burial of an ancient pharaoh. Ten years of toil had not been wasted, and our hopes were to be realised with a result far exceeding our expectations. End quote. There is a famous image of Carter opening these shrines. In the photo, he crouches before shrine number one, the largest. He has opened the doors of this shrine, and the second, and the third. Now, as assistants look over his shoulder, Carter opens the final shrine. He reveals the fourth or smallest shrine, the one in which Tutankhamun lay. Together, he and the assistants lean forward, peering into the structure. It is an evocative image that captures that sense of discovery. Opening the doors, Carter came closer and closer to the king. Now he knew that the burial was undisturbed, and he knew what to expect. The anticipation was palpable. Now I should clarify something here. Occasionally, writers are surprised that Carter knew or suspected what lay within. To the casual viewer, that may sound suspicious. Had Carter entered this tomb even earlier? How did he know what to expect? The answer is quite simple. It has to do with other tombs and earlier archaeology. You see, Tutankhamun's burial is the first intact royal tomb ever discovered. But archaeologists working in other monuments had found pieces and traces of earlier burials. Excavators had uncovered statues, chariots, coffins, sarcophagi, amulets, and shabtis, all sorts of burial equipment. Now, these items were dispersed and usually damaged or broken, but overall, there were enough pieces to get a sense of royal burials. So before Tutankhamun came to light, Egyptologists had a basic picture of what the tombs probably contained. Carter's discovery added a lot of detail to that picture. But when he first entered the burial chamber, Carter already knew what other tombs, historically, had probably contained so he had a good idea of what to expect. There might be some differences, but overall, the tomb of King Tutankhamun was not radically different from what earlier scholars had imagined. For Carter, there seems to have been a sense of familiarity. He had read about other tombs, and he had excavated in some of them. Now, an intact burial confirmed a lot of what he had expected. So the matter is quite simple. Previously, A century of scholarship and excavation had built up a vague picture. Carter's excavation simply filled in the details. So as he opened the doors and peered into the shrines, Carter's excitement was mixed. He had a combination of unexpected discovery and the thrill of new objects. But he also had a sense of anticipation, born from study and previous experience. As he opened each door, he had a vague idea of what probably lay within. But as he would see, 
there were still plenty of surprises. One by one, Carter opened the doors. The shadows broke, and gold glittered in the light. The sight was amazing, and years later, Carter recorded his impressions in audio. As he opened those shrines and looked within, these were his experiences. Quote, I carefully cut the cord, removed the precious seal, drew back the bolts, and opened the door. When a second shrine was revealed, even more brilliant in workmanship than the last. With intense excitement, I went forward and unbolted the inner door. They slowly swung open, and there, filling the entire area within, stood an immense yellow quartzite sarcophagus. It effectually barred any further progress until we could raise the lid. Inside the shrines, there was a sarcophagus, a stone casket carved and decorated. It protected the mummy and the coffins of Tutankhamun. The sarcophagus was probably the most important piece of a royal burial, besides the mummy. Coffins could decay, their wood rotting away, but the stone of the sarcophagus was immortal. It should endure for eternity. So this made the sarcophagus an essential piece of the burial equipment. In fact, it's one of the few items you will find in pretty much every royal tomb. If a king was going to his rest, he needed a stone sarcophagus. Tutankhamun's sarcophagus is quartzite, a type of hard sandstone. It has a reddish tinge and is covered with elaborate decorations. The most notable feature is the corners. At each end, two goddesses stand with their arms wrapped around the edges. These deities have large wings that stretch out from their arms. Those wings wrap around the corners and along the sides. It seems like the goddesses are embracing Tutankhamun's casket, enfolding it in their protection. Of course, that is exactly what they are doing. The goddesses give Tutankhamun the safety of their wings. They guard his body and guide him to eternity. These deities are famous individuals. By Tutankhamun's head, you have figures of Isis or Aset and Nephthys Nebethut. These two goddesses are sisters, relatives of Osiris, and they appear frequently in funerary texts. By the feet, we also have Neith and Selket. These two are not related to Osiris, but they play an important role in the afterlife. You see, all four of these goddesses are guardians. They protected souls as they journeyed into the next world. These goddesses are old. In fact, Isis, Nephthys, Neith, and Selket all show up in the pyramid texts, more than a thousand years before King Tutankhamun. So, at each corner of his sarcophagus, the young ruler enjoyed protection from truly ancient beings. The great ladies would guard his body and embrace him in their wings. As a piece of art, the sarcophagus is beautiful, and it's quite innovative. You see, the figures of these goddesses are a new feature. Royal sarcophagi in earlier periods did not have them. Tutankhamun's sarcophagus is the second royal casket to include such figures. The first? Well, the first of these was actually Akhenaten. Akhenaten's sarcophagus at Amarna 
had four women on the corners. These were not traditional goddesses. Instead, Akhenaten had figures of Nefertiti, his great wife. Nevertheless, the figures of women at each corner was a new motif. Akhenaten introduced it, now Tutankhamun continued it. This may sound strange. Why would Tutankhamun use an idea that Akhenaten had introduced? Well, surprisingly, the new design, a female figure at each corner, was going to persist. It would appear on royal sarcophagi for several generations to come. It is a quiet reminder that, although Akhenaten was a political problem, some of his philosophical ideas actually continued. Tutankhamun and others would use a motif that Akhenaten introduced. As we have seen recently, the boy king and the heretic king are connected much more closely than you may expect. Anyway, the sarcophagus is beautiful, but I can't describe everything. Instead, I will return to this topic in the future. Perhaps with some expert input, we can have a better look. For now, let's move on and see what lay within the stone. Having opened the shrines, Carter saw the sarcophagus. But he would have to wait a long time to look inside. Having discovered the tomb in November 1922, Carter spent 13 months working on the monument. He studied, documented, and preserved hundreds of objects. Each one required attention and care. So weeks, then months went by, and the sarcophagus remained sealed. Finally, the team got to a point where they could open the box. On Tuesday, February 12th, 1924, the group approached the casket. Once again, Carter described this in audio. Quote, Then a decisive moment. None of us but felt the solemnity of the occasion. In a dead silence, the huge lid, weighing over a ton and a quarter, was raised from its bed. Light shone into the sarcophagus. But how disappointing. The contents were completely covered by linen shrouds. Raising the great stone lid, the team uncovered linen. Two shrouds filled the sarcophagus, covering something underneath. The shrouds were dark, soaked with oils and resins, and it took time to conserve them. But eventually, the team was able to pull back the linen and see what lay beneath. At this point, the amazing treasures came to light. Carter said, quote, But as the last shroud was rolled back, a gasp of wonderment escaped our lips. So gorgeous was the sight that met our eyes. A golden effigy of the young king of magnificent workmanship filled the whole of the interior. This was but the lid of a series of three coffins nested one within the other, enclosing the mortal remains of the young king Tutankhamun. Laid on that golden outer lid was a tiny wreath of flowers, as it pleased us to think the last farewell offering of the widowed girl queen to her husband. Among all that regal splendor, everywhere the glint of gold, there was nothing so beautiful as those few withered flowers. They told us 
what a short period 3,300 years really was. But yesterday and tomorrow. The lid came off, the shrouds rolled back, and inside the sarcophagus, modern humans saw the gold coffin of Tutankhamun. 3,000 years since going into the dark, the king's face returned to the light. The image was beautiful, astounding. All the adjectives you can think of for treasure, art, symbolic objects, and memorials to the dead. These magnificent objects lay inside the sarcophagus. And although they could only see one coffin, the Egyptologists knew, inside, there would probably be more. Carter took special note of the flowers that lay on the outer coffin. A wreath, or bouquet, adorned the forehead of this casket. It seemed to be an offering, and Carter liked to think that it lay there as a gift from Queen Ankesen Amun. A last presentation from wife to husband. Was that correct? Mm, no idea. We don't have any information about it. But it is a nice image. Ankesen Amun laying flowers on the coffin of Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun had three coffins protecting his body. They nestled one within the other, surrounding the mummy. These coffins were lavish, wood, gold, glass, and precious stones. They bore hieroglyphs and images related to the afterlife. They communicated the role of Tutankhamun in the next world, and they invoked protection from great gods. Most importantly, these coffins protected the king's body from any damage or loss. To keep things simple, I will describe these coffins in the order that Howard Carter first encountered them. First, the largest coffin, then the second, or middle coffin, finally the third, or smallest coffin. This is the opposite order to how Tutankhamun experienced them. When the mourners lay his mummy down, they placed him in the smallest coffin, then the middle, then the largest. So from his point of view, we are going in reverse. But really, that is the only way to describe these pieces, without getting confused. So, the largest coffin. Coffin number one. The outer shell of Tutankhamun's sacred caskets. Let's explore it. The largest coffin was wood covered with gold. It showed the king wearing a blue and yellow headdress. The body was wrapped with feathers and wings. Along the length of this coffin, figures of Isis, Aset, and Nephthys Nebethut wrapped their wings around the king's legs. This feathered pattern is common in the 18th dynasty, and Tutankhamun has an especially lovely example. In the centre, a band of hieroglyphs recorded the names of the king, and they offered prayers for Tutankhamun's well-being. Among the various texts, there are passages like the following. Quote, Speech of the Osiris, the king Nebkeperu-Ra, Tutankhamun. He, the king, says, O Mother Nut, spread your wings over me, like the imperishable stars. Below that, another set of hieroglyphs say, Speech of the Osiris, the king, lord of the two lands, Tutankhamun, ruler of the southern Iyunu, the one who is in the coffin, under the protection of the two goddesses, Isis and Nephthys. End quote. These texts are simple, but evocative. On the outer casket, 
Tutankhamun called upon three great deities. Nut, Lady of the Sky, on whose body the stars whirled endlessly. Isis, the sister of Osiris and the mother of Horus. Nephthys, the Lady of the Mansion, the sister of Osiris and protector of the dead. With the power of these goddesses, the king could sleep soundly in his chambers. So the coffin has deities protecting its surface, and texts to empower the king. My favourite part of this coffin is the feet. You see, the bottom of the coffin is damaged in a very particular way. Looking at this damage, we can learn something fun. Let me explain. When Howard Carter opened the sarcophagus, he found that the largest coffin was chipped at the bottom. The casket's toes had been hacked away by someone using a hammer and chisel. Why? Well, it seems the artists made a mistake. When designing these coffins, they got the measurements slightly wrong. The coffins did not quite fit into the sarcophagus. When they laid them to rest, the toes of the largest coffin poked up above the rim. So the coffin was slightly too big. If they did not solve that, the sarcophagus lid would not fit in place. Working quickly, someone fixed the problem then and there. A carpenter took a chisel and hammer and crudely hacked the toes away. They did this on the spot when the coffin was already in the sarcophagus. We know that because as the carpenter hacked, they broke pieces or fragments off the coffin. Those fragments lay in the bottom of the sarcophagus where they had fallen. So it seems that someone fixed the issue quickly as they were conducting the burial. Working in a rush, the carpenter hacked the toes off, and they did not bother to clean the mess up afterwards. It's a cool detail. To cover up their mistake, the priests poured resin onto the toes. That resin is still there, a black mass dripping off the end of the coffin. If you get a chance to see this item in a museum, take a look at the feet. The black liquid should still be there, running down the gold. I love details like this. They connect us with the people who actually did the work. The treasures of Tutankhamun are so glamorous, it is easy to imagine they are perfect. The truth is, they are quite the opposite. Look closely, and you will see plenty of human error. Moving on, we come to the second coffin. This one is distinctive. Again, it is wood covered with gold, but the decoration is different. The first coffin had a pattern of wings and feathers, but the second coffin is decorated with tiny chevrons. Glass shapes in blue, red, and yellow adorn the body. These chevrons cover most of the second coffin, and this design is quite unusual. The last time we saw a decoration like this, it was on the coffin from KV-55. That's the Amana cache, just across the road from Tutankhamun's tomb. So this second coffin seems to belong to an earlier tradition. The decorative pattern is closer to Akhenaten's period than anything else. The face of this coffin is also unusual. The second coffin has a different visage to the other two. From some perspectives, it seems harder, more mature, as if the individual was older. 
This raises questions about the ownership of the coffin. Did the second casket always belong to King Tutankhamun? Or did somebody else own it to begin? To date, that is unclear. The second coffin might be a product of another monarch, perhaps Nefer-Neferu-Aten, or possibly Smenkkar-Re. This idea is mainly based on the face, and the different decorative pattern between this coffin and the others. Fair enough, those are quite distinctive. But this idea is quite uncertain. For one thing, the face is different, but it's possible that the design was intended to represent a more mature Tutankhamun, a king who lived longer than 19. Perhaps this coffin was commissioned early in his reign, and the design anticipated him reaching a much older age. That is just hypothetical, but it's a possible explanation. Alternatively, the artists may have done a poor job at capturing the king's likeness. That one may seem unlikely, but again, it is possible. What I mean is, the second coffin is unusual, but there could be different reasons for that. It doesn't automatically mean that it belonged to someone else. Realistically, the only way we could be sure is if we could prove that the names had been changed. If scholars studying this coffin find an area where the ancients had re-carved the hieroglyphs, that might help to prove the situation. To date, studies of this coffin have failed to uncover any changes in the texts. No re-carving, no replacement of the names. So, for now, there is no direct evidence that the coffin belonged to someone else. Maybe it did, but no one has proved that just yet. So we have to leave that question in an uncertain position. It might have belonged to an earlier ruler, but it might not. For now, we simply do not know. The third and smallest coffin was amazing. Unlike the other two, this one was not wood covered with gold. Instead, the third coffin is solid gold, 100% metal from beginning to end. The coffin weighed about 110 kgs, nearly 300 pounds, and its surface is a stunning product of ancient artistry. The coffin presents Tutankhamun as a mummy. His arms are crossed over his chest, and the hands clutch a crook and flail. Royal scepters, symbols of authority. The face of this coffin resembles that of coffin number one, so presumably this solid gold piece was made at the same time, and as far as we can tell, both of those definitely belong to Tutankhamun. My favourite part of this coffin is the eyes. At some point, the white part of the eyes decayed, and this left the eyes as black empty sockets. The decay was probably a result of humidity, combined with the pure gold of the casket. With no wood, the ancient glue did not bond so well, and so the whites of the eyes crumbled away. Today, only the black pupils made of obsidian remain. As a result, Tutankhamun's third coffin has a rather ghostly visage. Personally, I love it. When coffin number three came to light, it was wrapped in a shroud of linen. The fabric, dyed red, went around the body, and another cloth wrapped around the head, so only the face was visible. 
Across the chest, the ancients had placed a garland made of flowers, with fruit, beads, and papyrus. This gave the coffin a kind of bundled-up appearance, like a baby wrapped in swaddling. When he gazed on it for the first time, Carter saw the golden face peeking out of the shroud. You can see photos of this coffin as it first appeared. It is quite charming. Like the other two, coffin number three has texts, bands of hieroglyphs offering praise and prayer for Tutankhamun. These are mostly generic. We hear from great deities like Nut, Geb, Osiris, and Isis. They speak for the king and give him praise. We also have chapters from the Book of the Dead, the sacred texts that would guide Tutankhamun in the next world. These hieroglyphs say things like, quote, May the sky open, may the earth open, may the west open, may the east open. May the doors open for Ra when he goes forth from the horizon. For the lord of the two lands, Neb Keparura, Tutankhamun, he who lives forever. End quote. You get the idea. The hieroglyphs call for all paths, all horizons, to open for the king. They connect Tutankhamun with Ra, and link the king's afterlife with the journey of the sun. As Ra emerges from the horizon in the morning, Tutankhamun also will enjoy eternal life. The texts are conventional, nothing specific to King Tutankhamun, but that's normal. Most coffins have a variety of texts, like the Book of the Dead, and it is rare to find something truly custom-made. That even goes for the pharaohs. <laughs> the coffins and sarcophagus reveal aspects of Tutankhamun's world. They show the living world in which religious beliefs shaped practices, where artistic skill produced magnificent objects and treasures. They also show the world of the dead, where the sun god made an eternal journey across the sky, and where spirits, including Tutankhamun, followed that deity. Great beings supported, protected, and empowered the pharaoh. As Tutankhamun travelled beyond the western horizon, all doors and roads would open for him. With the power and protection of his funerary goods, he could enjoy the blessings of eternity. For Howard Carter, the sarcophagus and the coffins were a series of delights. As each layer came away, a new treasure revealed itself. Beautiful art decorated the coffins. Evocative texts spoke of the gods protecting the king. And small details revealed the human touch. Damage or mistakes hinted at the work of ancient artists. The more the archaeologist explored, the more Tutankhamun's society came back to life. Of course, there was more. The sarcophagus and the coffins were there for one purpose and one purpose only, to protect the body of Tutankhamun. Within the gold, that body lay waiting. Soon, Carter and his colleagues would see it face to face.
Chapter 9. The Face of the Pharaoh. At last, we come to the mummy of King Tutankhamun, the young man's body embalmed, wrapped, and protected. It was not the first time that archaeologists had found the body of a pharaoh lying in his tomb, but it was the first time that scholars had seen the royal mummy intact and undisturbed in its original burial. Other rulers had remained in their tombs here and there, but Tutankhamun was the first to appear bedecked in all his finery. So, what did the king look like? Today, if you imagine a mummy, you probably get the Hollywood version, a body wrapped in linen bandages that wind round and round. Fair enough, that is the basic gist. But mummies, especially royal ones, actually have accessories. Trinkets, jewellery, and other fabrics adorned these bodies. Tutankhamun was no exception. When they opened the coffin, Carter and his companions saw red. Literally. The mummy of Tutankhamun was wrapped head to toe in a shroud of red linen. That linen was fragile. Before they could touch it, the team had to coat the fabric in wax. They dripped paraffin slowly over the linen. Then, when that hardened, they carefully cut through the material. Doing that, the team could remove the shroud in large pieces, while preventing it from crumbling to dust. It wasn't an ideal solution, but that was the best available. Inside, the king's body lay in his coffin, as you would expect. The mummy was not quite straight. When they found it, Tutankhamun was lying at an angle within the casket, so it seems like his body shifted around slightly during the funeral. Also, the mourners had anointed Tutankhamun with oils. Resins and liquid poured into the coffin and covering the body. Apparently, they added these oils outside the tomb, before they lifted the coffin into the sarcophagus. How do we know that? Well, the oils and resins pooled in the bottom of the coffin. Later, that mass of liquid dried and hardened, and the level of this liquid varied at different points. On one side of the coffin, the liquid was higher. On the other, it was lower. So apparently, the mourners poured oils over the mummy. Then, they lifted the coffin up, carried it into the tomb, and placed it in the chamber. As they did so, Tutankhamun's body shifted around, and the oils slowly pooled in distinct areas. This is great. Tiny details, like the thickness of a liquid, can help us to reconstruct stories. Like a good detective, Carter noticed the small physical features, and those revealed ancient events. It is so cool. Beneath the shroud, the first layers of wrapping and the first ornaments came to light. One by one, Carter and his team removed fabulous items. In total, more than 150 objects emerged from Tutankhamun's wrappings. Item after item, trinket after trinket, came forth from the bandages. Each one of these had a purpose, and each one was a work of art. Put it all together, and the king was a treasure trove in himself. If he could walk, Tutankhamun's mummy would have been weighed down by all that gold. If his spirit in the next world was wearing these items, he must have jingled loudly. But at least he would look on brand. The king had more drip than anyone on the red carpet. 
I'm not saying he's an icon, but what I am saying is, put Tutankhamun on the cover of Vogue, you cowards. <clears throat> Pardon me. Moving on from the shroud, we start digging into the ornaments, the items of metal, stone, and glass that adorned Tutankhamun's mummy. First up, the decorations. Tutankhamun's hands and limbs were covered in fabric. But on top of the wrappings, the ancients added some artificial limbs. A pair of hands made of gold were sewn onto the linen. These hands crossed over the chest, and each one held a royal scepter, the crook and the flail. So Tutankhamun's mummy held the same items that his coffins did. Every layer of the wrapping had a set of symbols, markers of his power and authority. Beneath the hands, there were bands, strips of gold running down the body of the king. Each band was made of metal and decorated with precious stones, like quartz, lapis lazuli, and glass. The bands had hieroglyphs that gave praise to the king. We hear about Tutankhamun being honoured before the gods, and great deities like Nut, the sky goddess, Geb, the earth god, Anubis, the lord of embalming, and the four sons of Horus, offer him praise. All of these deities appear as protectors of the dead. So the mummy bands honour Tutankhamun, and they invoke gods who could protect him. They serve a religious purpose. The bands are pretty, a nice piece of work, but they are also important historically. You see, these golden bands offer another hint at King Tutankhamun's inheritance. Earlier, we saw how one of the coffins might have belonged to someone else originally. That is uncertain, but it's possible. Well, these golden bands are more certain. They definitely belonged to someone else. The golden bands have cartouches with the names of Tutankhamun. These cartouches are not original. They have been modified. At some point, ancient artisans removed the cartouches and replaced them. Most of those replacements are clean. You wouldn't necessarily know they were there. But two cartouches reveal the secret. Etched in the back of the bands, two names still appear. These are Ankh-Keperu-Ra and Nefer-Neferu-Aten. In other words, these bands originally belonged to King Nefer-Neferu-Aten. That might be Nefertiti, ruling as a pharaoh. This begs the question, what are the mummy bands doing with Tutankhamun? It seems that for one reason or another, King Nefer-Neferu-Aten did not get to use their burial goods. Years later, the royal artisans repurposed these objects. Instead of melting them down or throwing them away, they replaced the names and added those of Tutankhamun. We don't know if that was planned, or if they did it in a rush when the king died unexpectedly. Either way, King Nefer-Neferu-Aten did not get to use their treasures. As a result, Tutankhamun got to inherit them. So the outer decorations for King Tutankhamun's mummy give a hint at the royal pageantry. We get ideas of his power and authority, like the hands with crook and flail. But we also get a hint at politics, and some shady dealings that might have happened in the court. Many of these objects are still being studied by Egyptologists, and there is work to be done. Hopefully we will get more answers in the future. But for now, 
there are some tantalising questions around these objects. So far, we have focused on the outside of the mummy. There was a red shroud surrounding the body, golden hands and bands sewn onto the linen. Now, we can dip beneath the wrappings and look at the decorations for King Tutankhamun's body. First up, his feet. On his feet, Tutankhamun wore sandals made of gold. They were carefully fashioned to imitate reeds or papyrus. That was the sort of footwear most Egyptians would wear on a day-to-day basis. So the sandals were both humble from a design perspective, and yet incredibly lavish. It's a nice contrast. Along with the gold sandals, Tutankhamun also had golden toes. Metal sheaths, decorated, were wrapped around his digits. The toes are detailed. They have nails and cuticles as well. They even have wrinkles where the knuckle would go. So the artist did not skimp on the design. When preparing Tutankhamun's accessories, they covered every point. Moving up from the toes, we have the king's hands. These were similar. On his fingers, Tutankhamun had more golden sheaths. The fingertips had caps of metal, and again, they were beautifully modelled. He also had rings, heavy golden bands with the royal cartouche. It's possible these were Tutankhamun's seal rings, the ones that he could press into wax to make his mark. Or perhaps they're just ornaments, proclaiming his name. Whatever their purpose, the king had a lot of these. He was dripping in ornamental objects. Finally, Tutankhamun's wrists and arms bore a huge set of bracelets. Bangles and bands, circles and armlets. They came in a wide variety of designs and materials. There were cartouches, scarab beetles, wadjet eyes, or the eyes of Horus, ropes and knots. They were all made in gold, faience or stone. Looking at photos, the king's tiny mummified limbs are covered in beautiful jewels and objects. Finally, there was the head. Tutankhamun had his mask, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But beneath the mask, the king had some cool items. Among the wrappings, Carter and his team uncovered a diadem, a band of gold decorated with circles, papyrus flowers, and patterns. It had inlays of quartz, or carnelian, and at the back, long bands of gold hung down like metal ribbons. At the front of this diadem, a vulture and a cobra rear up, protecting the brow of the king. The body of the cobra is quite interesting. It winds back and forth over the top of the head and around to the back, as if the serpent was winding across Tutankhamun's skull and then rearing up to protect him. This piece is magnificent, a crowning jewel of Egyptian metalwork. Beneath the diadem, there was a cap, a piece of linen lying atop the skull. The cap was finely woven and decorated with snakes. Cobras, or uraei, face to the left and right. The serpent's bodies weave sinuously over the top, and on their bodies, the snakes have tiny cartouches of gold. There is something strange about these cobras, something unexpected. You see, the cartouches on their bodies record a name, a rather unexpected name. The cartouches say, quote, Ra, the Horus of the Two Horizons, 
rejoicing in the horizon, in his name, Shu, that which is in the Aten. End quote. The headcap bears emblems naming the Aten, the sun god favoured by Akhenaten and famously rejected by Tutankhamun's regime. The young king and his advisors had changed the pharaoh's name from Tutankhaten to Tutankhamun. His monuments emphasised other gods and shied away from Aten. And yet, on the brow of his mummy, Tutankhamun wore a cap naming the Aten himself. Why? For those who have been listening along, you will know that Tutankhamun's relationship with Aten is more complicated than it seems. The king's government moved away from Aten worship, but they did not erase the god from the records. Aten was still respectable, even if Akhenaten had become a bad memory. And many objects from Tutankhamun's burial record the names of Aten here and there. The question is, did the young ruler favour that god, or were the objects placed on his mummy a product of other priorities? Perhaps the royal artisans worked in haste, and they gathered together whatever objects they could. It is hard to say, but the Aten cartouches on top of Tutankhamun's head are curious indeed. The shroud, the bands, the hands, and the ornaments are lovely. They deserve more attention. But of course, there is one object above all. Lying atop the bandages, Tutankhamun's mummy wore a stunning golden mask. Tutankhamun gazes at us across the centuries. His eyes are clear, with quartzite for the sclera, the whites of the eye, and black obsidian for the pupils. The quartzite is white, but it has a slight tinge of red, similar to the blood vessels in real eyes. This helps the mask feel more alive. Looking into the eyes, you can almost imagine Tutankhamun looking back. The king's face is exquisitely modelled. The artists took sheets of gold, hammered them into shape, and rubbed them with stone. They polished or burnished the metal, smoothing out the impurities and making it gleam. As a result, the mask is reflective in all the right places. Light bounces off the cheekbones, the chin, and it catches the edge of the lips. So whatever the conditions, the mask has a lifelike appearance, distinct and clear. The king's face is gold, but the details are stone. For Tutankhamun's eyebrows and makeup, the artists used lapis lazuli. This is a blue stone from distant lands. Lapis lazuli was expensive, rare, and symbolic. The Egyptians said that the gods had hair made of lapis lazuli. Well, Tutankhamun's mask imitates that. Around his eyes, the king's makeup is blue stone. His eyebrows are the same. And the headdress over his brow and shoulders alternates lapis lazuli and gold. Everywhere you look, the yellow metal contrasts with the blue stone. The effect is bold, vibrant, and rich in divine symbolism. The king's headdress fans out like a wig, or the hood of a cobra. It covers Tutankhamun's head and shoulders, and drapes down over his chest. Beneath the headdress, the mask also has a necklace. A wide collar stretches out and down, 
covering the shoulders and heart of the king. The necklace is striped, twelve rows of beads separated by gold. These stripes alternate in colour, blue, red, turquoise, and the bottom stripe has a pattern of symbols with a kind of teardrop shape. They resemble beads hanging off a necklace. So even when making a golden effigy, the artists would imitate real jewellery. Little details like this are wonderful. Of course, the mask has a beard, a protrusion made of gold and decorated with faience. The beard looks like hair, and the artists placed the faience in a braided pattern. Between the faience, tiny strands of gold marked the details. Again, they imitated life wherever they could. Finally, the mask had protection. Atop the head, a vulture and a cobra rear up. These goddesses are gold with inlays of stone and glass. Their presence is a reminder of Pharaoh's power. The vulture and the serpent are old symbols. They relate to goddesses who fight for the king, destroy his enemies, and so forth. So looking at the mask, you see a portrait of Tutankhamun, but you also see a display of Egypt's royal gods. The message is clear. Don't get too close. Visually, the mask is stunning, and there's not much I can say that you wouldn't get from a really good photo. But the mask is not perfect. If you ignore the glamour and look closely, you can see many errors in this object. For example, the stripes on the headdress are kind of wonky. The bands of gold are irregular, and the lapis lazuli is often crooked or bent. The beads on the necklace fluctuate in their size and their straightness. So the decorative elements are a bit haphazard. There are dents here and there, and looking at the mask's outline, you can see where the gold or lapis lazuli sticks out in certain places. Basically, the mask is a product of human hands, and it has human error in its manufacture. Personally, I think that adds to the appeal. Every crease, every mistake, gives a glimpse at the people who made it. You can imagine the metal worker sweating over a forge. They hammer and polish. They add beads one by one. At every step, they have to heat the metal, add the cement, and carefully arrange the pieces. Short on time, with a massive project to finish, you could imagine them cursing as the beads don't line up, as the lapis lazuli, or gold, turns out slightly crooked. Unfortunately, no time to fix it. They did their best and got the thing done. Frankly, in the circumstances, the mask is an incredible achievement. Tutankhamun's golden mask is amazing, magnificent, a top-tier example of ancient metalwork. Beyond the obvious cost and value of the item, the skill is simply wonderful. It is not perfect, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. When we look at this mask, we can see many aspects. We see the liveliness of Tutankhamun's visage. We see the beauty of the decoration. And we see the careful labour of the artists. If things did not turn out perfectly, that only adds to the beauty. This item is the very pinnacle of ancient Egyptian craft. You might say it is a masterpiece. The golden mask gives a portrait of Tutankhamun, the living image of Amun. 
Of course, it is incredibly famous. From the moment it emerged, this mask has been a poster child for ancient Egypt, for glamour, for treasure, and the lost world of the pharaohs. But there is more to it than pretty pictures. The mask is not just an image. It actually has texts. On the back, we find 12 columns of hieroglyphs honouring the king. These texts offer praise to young Tutankhamun, and they describe his place in the afterlife. The mask says, quote, Hail to you, beautiful of face, or Neferher, the lord of radiance, the one whom Pitar Sokar has joined together, the one whom Anubis, Anpu, has set on high, the one to whom Thoth, Jehuti, has given the pillars of the sky. Beautiful of face, the one who is among the gods, your right eye is the night bark, the boat of Ra. Your left eye is the day bark. Your eyebrows are the Ennead, the divine council. Your forehead is Anubis. The back of your head is Horus. Your braided hair is Pitar Sokar. And you are before Osiris, so that he may see by means of you. End quote. Basically, the mask describes the various gods who will protect Tutankhamun in the next world. Anubis, the embalmer and guardian of the dead. Thoth, the Lord of Wisdom, who puts things in their proper place. Pitar Sokar, two lords of artisans and gods of the necropolis. Osiris, the King of the Dead and the Lord of the West. These gods would guide Tutankhamun, protect him, invigorate him, and bring him to eternity. So the Golden Mask offers praise and support for the young king. There's actually more to this mask. In the second half of the text, more hieroglyphs record obligations that Tutankhamun must fill. Having met Osiris on the road to the west, Tutankhamun should guide and protect that deity himself. Along the way, the king should banish Osiris' enemies. And if he did that, he would reach a place of celebration and rule. The second half of the text says, quote, May you, Tutankhamun, Guide Osiris on the good roads, so that you may smite for him the followers of Seth, and that he, Osiris, might overthrow your enemies before the divine council in the great mansion. He, Osiris, has taken possession of the crown in the presence of Horus, the lord of aristocrats. O Osiris, king Nebkeperura, true of voice, given life like Ra. End quote. Tutankhamun should protect Osiris by driving away the followers or entourage of Seth. If he does that, Osiris will take up his crown in the holy city of Iyunu, Heliopolis. Finally, Osiris and Tutankhamun would unite. They would become one being, the eternal king of the world. So the golden mask, the world-famous image of Tutankhamun, bears a powerful message. As the king slept, Wrapped in shrouds and treasures, the hieroglyphs on his shoulders offered protection, and they offered guidance for his journey to the west. The mask is stunning, but how was it made? Well, scholars have studied this object, particularly the insides, and it is possible to reconstruct the manufacture. Firstly, the mask is not a single piece of gold. It is two. 
The face and the headdress are separate distinct pieces. They have different qualities. The face is 18 carat gold, and the headdress is 22 carats. They also have slightly different colours. The face has a little bit of a blue tinge, while the headdress is yellower. So right out the gate, we can see two distinct elements to the mask, two pieces of gold used to create the object. Now, how was it made? Well, the artists crafted each piece separately. First, they made the headdress, and then the face came later. They shaped these pieces individually, and then welded them together. We can tell that by looking at the neck. Around Tutankhamun's neck, where the face meets the headdress, there is a clear and distinctive line. It seems to be a result of soldering, applying heat to bond the two pieces. Also, there are small holes from rivets, or nails, stuck into the metal. So, looking at the mask casually, it might seem like a flawless piece. But look closer, and you can see the marks of the ancient metalwork. Pretty cool. Finally, there is one really important question. It concerns the mask's ownership. In recent decades, scholars have looked closely at this mask, along with other objects from the tomb. And like the second coffin, they have raised questions about the ownership of this mask. A couple of Egyptologists suspect that Tutankhamun was not the original owner. Again, he may have inherited this from a predecessor. Since 2001, Egyptologist Nicholas Reeves has argued that the mask of Tutankhamun may not be the mask of Tutankhamun. He has published a few articles on this, and I will put links in the episode description where you can read them. The argument is detailed, but here is the gist. Reeves suggests that another ruler, not Tutankhamun, actually commissioned the mask. His candidate is that king, Ankh-Keperu-Ra Nefer-Neferu-Aten, the one just before Tutankhamun, who might be Nefertiti. Why does Reeves think Nefer-Neferu-Aten commissioned the mask? The starting point was the ears. The mask of Tutankhamun has pierced ears. That's fine, the king's mummy has ear piercings as well, and his predecessor, Akhenaten, frequently appeared in art with piercings. But the people who buried Tutankhamun actually tried to hide the pierced ears. They inserted gold discs into the holes to cover them up. Why? Well, Reeves suggests that the mask was originally meant to portray a woman, Nefer Neferu Aten, so the ears were pierced from the beginning. But later, the artists changed the face of the mask, and instead of making new ears, they just covered up the holes. So, to start, Reeves wondered if the ears gave a clue. Then, a second reason came to light. This one was more conclusive. It was a name. In 2015, Reeves published a study showing that the hieroglyphs on this mask originally had a different name. Today, the cartouches say Neb Keperura, Tutankhamun, but there are hints or traces of an earlier identity. In his reconstruction, Reeves and scholar Mark Gabold suggest that the names originally said Ankh Keperura. Again, that is the ruler who came before Tutankhamun. Curious. Reeves suspects that originally 
King Nefer Neferuatim commissioned the Golden Mask. In the original plan, it would depict her, with her pierced ears and her royal name, Ankh-Keperura. But when Nefer Neferuatim died, she did not get to use this mask. Again, the royal officials left it out of her burial. Then, at some point, they erased the cartouches and added a new name, Tutankhamun. And when the boy king died, he, not his predecessor, got to use this object. In a nutshell, that is Reeves' hypothesis. It is still working through the community, and it will take time and research before scholars can be confident one way or another. Recently, Egyptologist Joanne Fletcher has also emphasised the ears of this mask. For Fletcher, the fact that Tutankhamun's mask has pierced ears is a strong argument for the hypothesis. Fletcher is building on the works of Reeves and Gabold, but for some reason, media outlets have chosen to criticise her particularly, which seems unfair. The point is, the question of Tutankhamun's mask and its original ownership is currently under investigation. Future research may bring more certainty. For now, we leave it as a maybe, but an intriguing maybe. The golden mask of King Tutankhamun is world famous. It is a symbol of Egypt, past and present. Today, there are some valid questions. Did the mask always belong to the king, or did artists modify it from an earlier design? For now, that remains a hypothesis unproved scientifically. But it is interesting, and hopefully future research will enlighten us. Golden hands, golden bands, golden feet, fingers and wrists. Cobras on the head, Aten appearing by name. This is a small taste of Tutankhamun's burial goods. The king's body was so decadent, so tricked out, that it would have been a stunning discovery by itself. If everything else in the tomb had been robbed, and only the mummy remained, the treasures on this body would still have been the most fabulous discovery in 20th century Egyptology. The fact that Tutankhamun's accessories sometimes get overlooked, well, that just emphasises how lavish this burial was. The many treasures of King Tutankhamun now reside in Cairo, the shrines, the coffins, the mask, and all the trinkets are preserved in museums. Today, the only pieces kept in the tomb are the stone sarcophagus and the royal mummy. Tutankhamun himself lies in a glass air-conditioned case. The sarcophagus stands where it was laid 3,000 years ago. These are the last remnants of the once-crowded chamber, the golden hall in which Tutankhamun slept. The excavation of Tutankhamun's burial took a long time. Between opening the tomb and finally seeing the mummy, a full 13 months would elapse. In that time, there were many tasks that faced the excavators. Conservation, documentation, and restoration were constant headaches. Then, there were social challenges. You see, as word got out of the tomb's discovery, the world's journalists turned their attention to Egypt. Howard Carter and his patron, Lord Carnarvon, had to face the questions and challenges of international observers. 
The process was anything but simple. Occasionally, it was hostile. And there were plenty of controversies. Through it all, the team struggled to do their work in peace. Unfortunately, the world had other ideas. And soon, additional problems would arise. Not long after the tomb opened, one of its discoverers died. And the world's media, hungry for news, happily built a narrative. Soon, commentators from all walks of life were gleefully talking about a curse. It is a story that hangs over the tomb to this day. Tutankhamun's body had many treasures among the wrappings, but there is one I have neglected to mention. As the wrappings came away and various trinkets emerged, there were also two weapons. A pair of daggers with golden sheaths lay within the bandages. One of these daggers is quite significant. Let's explore. The dagger is 34 centimeters long, or 13 inches. It has a handle covered with gold and a crystal set in the hilt which is cool. But the most intriguing part is the blade. You see, Tutankhamun's dagger is made of iron. Iron is rare in ancient Egyptian archaeology. It does show up occasionally in small pieces. But as an industry or a craft, iron working did not take off until the first millennium BCE. Egypt has iron deposits in the deserts and the hills but they did not use this metal nearly as much as others. Objects show up occasionally, like beads. By and large, though, iron was rare. It was mostly used for colours, like red, or smelting other metals, like copper. So where did Tutankhamun get an iron-bladed dagger? The most likely explanation is that this dagger was a gift, a treasure from foreign lands, brought to the pharaoh's court. We suspect that because in the reign of Akhenaten, letters from foreign kings show up at the court. These Amana letters cover a huge range of material, and one of those letters has an interesting comment. Quote, A gift of one dagger, the blade of which is iron. The haft has an inlay of stone, overlaid with gold. Its pommel is mounted in gold, and 14 shekels have been used on it. End quote. This letter, EA-22, came from a distant land, the kingdom of Mitanni. It was sent by a king named Toshrata to the great Amunhotep III. That was the father of Akhenaten, and possibly the grandfather of Tutankhamun. Toshrata, king of Mitanni, sent many gifts to Amunhotep, and among those gifts, daggers of iron are mentioned. One of those daggers sounds remarkably similar to young Tutankhamun's blade. A blade of iron, a pommel of stone, maybe crystal, and decorated with gold. This might not be the same dagger, but it's awfully close. 
So perhaps Tutankhamun's weapon came from Mitanni, the lands we now call Syria and northern Iraq. If that is accurate, then the king went around with a truly fabulous weapon, a blade that had travelled further than Tutankhamun ever would. A diplomatic gift from one king to the pharaoh. Now, Tutankhamun carries it in eternity. This dagger has been in the news recently. In 2016, scientists from Italy and Egypt published a new study of it. Building on earlier hypotheses, the group examined this dagger using XRF spectrometry, a type of X-ray analysis. Doing this, the team identified the elements present in the dagger. Their conclusions are technical, but the basic result was this. Tutankhamun's dagger is mostly iron, but it also has nickel and cobalt. These elements are the interesting part, because they appear in much higher quantities than usual. In other words, Tutankhamun's dagger has more nickel and cobalt than regular iron should. What does this mean? Well, I'm skipping over some technical details, but based on those elements, the team concluded that the metal for this dagger probably came from a meteorite. A meteorite is a piece of material, like rock, that comes from space and reaches Earth's surface. Most objects coming to our planet disintegrate in the atmosphere. But occasionally, a lucky rock makes it through. And those rocks, meteorites, are powerful symbols of the universe's scope. To the ancients, who had not explored space, items like these were objects of curiosity, and frequently of reverence. The Egyptians knew about meteorites. Some of their texts refer to rock or metal from the sky, aka biar en pet. We do not hear about these often, but the ancients seemed to know where they came from, and they described them accordingly. So the iron in this dagger might be from a meteorite. At the very least, the high traces of nickel and cobalt suggest it came from that source. Speculating roughly, it is possible that some ancient artisan found a meteorite in the desert. They collected the rock, smelted it down into metal, and then fashioned a blade from it. They might have presented that as a gift to a king, and eventually, the blade made its way to Egypt as a diplomatic gift. That is a totally hypothetical reconstruction, but you get the idea. If ancient observers found a meteorite in the desert, they might have considered it a special object. Using the metal from that rock, they could fashion a highly symbolic tool. Whatever its exact origins, Tutankhamun's iron dagger is fascinating. There's a good chance that it was a gift, sent to Egypt by foreign kings. But no matter its origin, the piece is lovely. When Howard Carter uncovered the dagger, the iron was in good condition, with just a couple of spots of rust. The blade was still strong, and the edge was still sharp. Today, this iron dagger is a seriously noteworthy relic. On the one hand, this iron blade hints at trade and diplomacy between ancient empires. On the other hand, the iron seems to have a unique history all its own. The iron in the dagger might have come from distant worlds. It travelled across space, plummeted through the atmosphere, and ploughed into the earth. Then, some time later, it found itself in a forge. A blacksmith fashioned it into a tool of war. 
and then it wound up in the most famous tomb in history. That's quite the journey for a lump of space rock. <laughs>